Morning for this thing. All right. Uh, so welcome to Sunday school. I have to. I do have to apologize. I'm slower than normal because of the cold that those kids share with me. Um, so if you notice that I'm kind of slow or thinking about it, uh, be patient. It, the brain is not working well. Um, so let us just start with prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this, your day. Uh, thank you for your blessings and your mercy in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can consider once again uh, your church, uh, you have done with what you have done with her and the blessing that it is uh, for us. Lord, uh, we pray of your spirit for us. Uh, open our eyes and hearts and ears so we can be blessed uh, by your spirit in hearing about the church and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Welcome, by the way. Um, so we have been uh, going through a series on ecclesiology, that is the doctrine of the church. And um, I just want you to, um, for those of you who have been here for uh, everything, just, I just want you to put everything together in your minds if you can. Uh, so remember, sin. What is sin? Sin is not a, a, a thing. Sin is a deformation of God's uh, creation, right? Uh, it's, it's kind of like a sickness. It gets you working badly. It doesn't make you work well. And because of that, then uh, uh, what God's grace does is to remove sin from his creation. Uh, when grace comes into the picture, it doesn't transform everything. It actually just removes what's gone wrong, that is, sin. Well, am I saying that? Because when we, see la when we saw last week creation and the kingdom of God concept, we saw that the kingdom of God encompasses Eden, and in the plan of, uh, of God, Eden was supposed to be expanded throughout the whole earth and the cosmos because God is a king who rules over everything that he has created. So kingdom of God, we said for the Old Testament, uh, has, has uh, a realm and that realm is the whole uh, of the cosmos, right? So in that sense, when you think about sin and the world, you don't think, oh, okay, sin and the world are the same thing. So when God comes, when Jesus Christ comes back and uh, he ensues eternity, he's going to destroy the cosmos because it's worth for nothing. No, that's not what it happens. It actually removes sin from the picture. So what enters in eternity is a perfected, glorified, a bettered, so to speak, uh, creation that has no sin in view. So that already has implications for how do we understand uh, animals in uh, uh, eternity, uh, how do we understand plants, trees, uh, the world, and even our bodies as well. Uh, when we enter into eternity, we have glorified bodies. We don't have um, uh, uh, glorified souls only. We have glorified bodies as well. Um, so that's more or less what we are going to see this morning as we follow the, the concept of the kingdom of God for the New Testament. And uh, what I want to, you to do this morning is just to uh, remember what we have been talking about last week, specifically about the hope of the Old Testament 
for uh, the kingdom of God. Remember that we saw this idea of the kingdom of God is already present in Genesis with Adam being his so, uh, surrogate, uh, God's surrogate as prophet, priest, and king, and then how God continues bringing a kingdom into the world through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the kingdom of Israel expands, and then the hope of the Israelites is to see this kingdom of God renewed, coming back onto, onto, onto uh, this earth. And that's why we said Jesus, when, when he appears, he says, the kingdom of God has arrived. Repent and believe. Uh, we said it's because they are familiar with the idea of kingdom, right? Uh, so how does that develop in the New Testament? It, does that change? I, I heard recently a person saying um, um, kingdom of God, and he traced it really, really well. He's, he did what I'm, I'm saying right now. And then he said, and in the New Testament, kingdom of God expands, uh, um, encompasses every single people, nation, tongue, tribe, and everything. And that's it. Um, so kingdom of God was related to land in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, land doesn't have anything to do with kingdom of God. And I was like, that's, that's interesting. And it's weird because if it is there in the Old Testament, uh, why should it disappear from the New Testament? Uh, why should suddenly land be spiritualized and had nothing to do with, uh, with the kingdom of God anymore? So we're going to see what is the hope of the New Testament regarding the kingdom of God and the church. In that sense, remember, the church is the center, the beginning of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God manifests mainly and principally, in principle, on the church. And from the church, it moves out into the world. So when we go into the world, we are shining, showing, sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. When you are working, when you are doing the things that you do, whatever those are, you are an ambassador of the king. You are living your life according to the standards of the kingdom. Uh, uh, and again, remember, it's kind of like when you are a citizen of the United States of America, and you go to a different country, everyone knows, right? Oh, he's an American. How do they know? Because of the things that you do, right? Uh, you are in France, and you're asking for a McDonald's. Um, oh, American, right? How do people know that you belong to the kingdom of God? Because of the way you behave, the way you act in the places, uh, in the different places, right? If you go to church on Sunday, but then you don't live as a Christian in the world, no one will know. That's, that's the idea of the kingdom of God. So let's, let's go ahead and see uh, what does that mean. So the kingdom of God in the New Testament, as I said, um, there are three components, basic, three, basically three components about the idea of the kingdom. There is a king, right, in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the Lord, and his appointed rulers, Adam and Eve. And then his covenant heirs, uh, a realm, right? The created universe, but at first the Garden of Eden, and then uh, the people, uh, perfect humanity as first at first created after the image of God without sin, but then after the fall, redeemed people by the blood of the Lamb after Genesis three fifteen. Now these three are three aspects that we see repeating themselves in the New Testament as well. So 
Jesus' first words about the kingdom are found in the two Gospels, as we saw. I read last week Matthew 4.17, Repent, for the kingdom of God has, is at hand. And then Mark 1.14.15, uh, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe <coughs> Excuse me, in the gospel. So two mentions right there that the kingdom of God is at hand, has arrived, and so on and so forth. So two conclusions from that one uh, as well. The first one is there is a person that we are hearing speaking right now, that says that the kingdom of God is at hand. And uh, um, that is Jesus Christ. He's also saying that the time is fulfilled. Uh, that is making reference to what we saw last week. All of these prophecies, all of these mentions in the Old Testament of a time in which God is going to bring his kingdom uh, to earth, in which he's going to bring his perfect king who will sit in the throne of David forever. And that's what Jesus is making mention to. Now, uh, Jesus is talking about kingdom come, kingdom coming, and the need for repenting. Uh, also, the concept of Jesus as the king is right there in the Gospels. So if you were to read Luke 3, uh, 23 to uh, 38, then you have this big, long, uh, chunky genealogy of the family of Joseph. And then if you trace those down uh, to um, verse, let me see, 31, uh, the son of Melea, the son of Mina, the son of Manatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, then we are suddenly starting to think, oh, Royalty, royalty. This is the line of King David. But then if you go even back uh, to the last verse, uh, 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and finally, the son of God. What is, what is Luke trying to tell us? Uh, this one that I'm talking to you about, um, people of God, this Jesus who has begun his ministry, of 30 years of age, he is the very son of God. And as the very son of God, he has come to do what God has appointed Adam to do, but he couldn't do, which is to show his rule over his uh, earth, over his cosmos. And it's connecting Jesus with this long dynasty that was broken, but that now he's going to Mend the David, Davidic dynasty. And then if you go to Mark 1, 12, 13, um, excuse me, Matthew uh, 1, 17, 1 to 17, then we get more directly the whole genealogy of Jesus Christ telling us about who he is from the human side. He is uh, the final heir of uh, David. Matthew specifically is very uh, key on this idea of the kingdom. He's all the time thinking about Jesus Christ being the king of the earth. He comes. He comes from the line of David. He fulfills all the prophecies. He is the king who is confronted by his enemies. Uh, he is the king who is uh, betrayed by his own people and so on. All that theme is in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, 
And then um, another idea about the kingdom is found in Mark 1, 12 to 13. Uh, let me read it to you. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Have you wondered why Jesus goes to the wilderness to be tempted? And why... Um, is Jesus being served by angels and by wild animals in the wilderness? That's kind of weird, isn't it? And wild. But Mark is a wild gospel anyway. So, um, but, but why is that? Have you thought on that? Um, do you remember where Adam and Eve were tempted? In the garden. What was in the garden? What, what could you find in the garden? <coughs> animals. Yeah. Were the animals trying to kill Adam and Eve? No. They were happy. They were uh, in, in harmony. So think about that. If Adam wanted bacon, the little pork came, dropped himself. Adam grabbed some ribs, grew back. They were ready and he just ate them. Um, no death. <coughs> no, I don't know if that's how it worked. But, <laughs> but the point is, um, animals were there and they were happy. There was no disharmony. Everything was perfect. It was a garden. They had everything under reach. But Jesus, and they were tempted there. So they had no indication to think, things are worse. This is so bad. God really hates us because we are in this horrible, horrible place. No, everything was beautiful. But see how Jesus is tempted. He's tempted in the wilderness, in lack, in need, where he is weak and where the animals could simply destroy him. But when he's tempted and he conquers those temptations, he brings harmony again. If kingdom of God is a concept that encompasses only your souls and only the spiritual life, then the gospel of Mark should say, and Jesus conquered uh, the temptations, and then he's there served by angels, and uh, he, his face <coughs> shining, and his spirit elevated, and uh, his body is just not there because he's in the spirit. But that's not what the Gospel of Mark says. It says that he has animals around him. This is, this is like a picture of glory, brothers and sisters. Uh, in Jesus Christ, there is harmony with the created cosmos. Not through uh, um, activism. Not through other things that you may... Uh, think about, but in Jesus. So it is good that we share the good news of the gospel. Do you know why? Because it has environmental um, ah, repercussions. Yeah. It has environmental repercussions. Doesn't Paul in, in, in Romans 8 says that the earth is under pain? Why, why would he say that? And he talks as if the earth, the cosmos, were a person. It's not. But he's characterizing it as, as it's in pains. 
Why is that? Because of the effects of sin. And it's waiting to us being delivered and enter into glory so the earth can enter into glory as well. So kingdom clearly encompasses more than just our souls and, and um, our spirits. Or it's the same thing. Uh, so Jesus is this final king who will fulfill the role of Adam uh, and the role that he couldn't fulfill and also fulfills the other thing, the promises to David. So Jesus, better king, conquers where Adam couldn't conquer and in worse conditions, paradise, wilderness. Animals friendly to him, uh, here animals uh, trying to attack him or wild animals that are unruly who Jesus comes and brings harmony to, and then he's worshipped by and served by angels. David, there was no one in his dynasty who could obey the Lord perfectly. I'm reading through um, the book of Kings right now, and it's, it's so interesting because all the time, uh, and so-and-so ruled over the land, and these are the things that they did. And are they not written in the book of uh, the Kings? Uh, or the chronicles of Israel, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and so on. And that's constant. You hear it once, and again, and again. Do you know who fulfills that? Uh, do you want to, if you are interested in that, do you want your brains to be blown away by why the refrain is there? Because I was thinking about this. Uh, why is it, it isn't repetitive? I was thinking, like, it will be a nightmare to preach through kings, and I want to do it. <laughs> Um, but all the time, uh, um, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings? Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings? And I was like, what do you do with that? Well, the Gospel of John does something with that. Chapter 20. Um, I think it's verse 30. John says, if all the things that Jesus did were to be written in books... I guess there will be no space in the world to write down all the things that Jesus did. Isn't that amazing? So the book of Kings tells you about the lacks of the kings and the horrible things that they did. The Gospels tell you about the better king. And they tell you little things so you can see all the wonders of what he did. And if we were to tell everything that he did, the whole earth will be full of his glory. That is just amazing. And why is that? Why that connection? Because Jesus is the heir of David. He fulfills that which David couldn't and his lineage couldn't fulfill. So Jesus is this better king. Now, what about the epistles? Uh, are they speaking of Jesus as king? Yes, they are. Uh, so First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty-two to 28 for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that he is uh, that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. 
when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, this is a very important uh, passage for us to understand the role of the kingdom. Kingdom, says Paul, is now. He is ruling it. Jesus is the king. And what is Jesus the king doing right now? He is advancing his kingdom. He is, uh, he says, um, uh, he, after he has destroyed every rule and every authority and every, every power. What is Jesus doing on heaven right now? He is interceding for you, right? He is uh, caring for you. He's bringing uh, pleads before the Father in your favor. But he's also doing, because uh, that's his role as a priest. But he's also ruling as a king. And what is he doing as a king? He's destroying, stomping over every single one of his enemies. And then when that is over, he will bring the kingdom to the Father. And we will see everything in perfect harmony and unity. That's what Paul is saying. Finally, all of us will be subjected to the Father. And everything, the kingdom of God is this place where everything is united in one. There is no division, no uh, dysfunctionality, no, no, nothing broken. Everything is perfect there. And that's the image that Paul conveys for us. Uh, Ephesians 4, uh, 8 to 10, when he ascended on high, that is Jesus, he led a host of, of captives, captives, and he gave, uh, he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he has also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Uh, so as you can hear, Jesus here is the, is the one who receives all the power. He, in fact, takes captives with, with him. And because he is the king and he can share the plunder of his victory, he gives those gifts to his church. He is a conquering thing, a conquering king. And uh, Paul says that Jesus might fill all things, not just some things, not just a few uh, things, but all things. There is nothing for the kingdom of God, as we saw last week, that is dirty or unfitting for the kingdom of God. Um, in that sense, um, some people have said uh, government is unnecessary evil. Uh, disagreed with that. Calvin disagrees with that. Uh, Babink, my, my hero, disagrees with that. Um, why? Because kingdom uh, of God has already the seed of government already in creation. Remember? Who is the first ruler? Yahweh. Who is his surrogate as a ruler in, in the garden? Adam. He is... He's under king, so to speak. What is that? Government. It's government. The idea is already there. There is nothing in this world that we create that is dirty in itself. Sin uh, destroys things. Sin um, uh, bends things in a crooked way. But grace restores that. Grace removes that. And do you know what is going to be there in heaven? Government. You know why? Because there is going to be a king. What is that? It's a ruler. It's a government. Who governs his people? God. 
And what is the people? Those who are governed over by God. So the idea of government is not dirty. It's implanted by God himself. I can see your, your brains already in shock because of that. But what did you think about that? Is it like heaven, a place where you are the ruler? That's not how it is. You're not. God is. And we are governed, even in the church, by him. What is, what is pastor, elders, deacons? It's government. It's a form of government. Right? And who is our pastor, deacons, and uh, elders? Jesus. Yeah. Because he is the head of the church. Government. Um, sounds dirty because government in the world has become dirty and is associated with, you know, corruption and everything. Um, but it's not dirty in itself. The concept is certainly uh, one from God. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians 2, 9, 11. Colossians 1, uh, 15 to 20. He is the image, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So who created all of those things? Jesus, right? Uh, all things were created through him and, and for him. Um, and he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So to reconcile how many things? Everything in heaven and on earth. Um, I don't know if you remember this, um, but uh, the, inaug uh, the inauguration of the year in Colorado West Christian School, I had to do chapel and, uh, and I asked the kids, why do we have uh, uh, a Christian school here? He said, because we want to protect uh, cushion and wall our kids as much as we can so they don't see reality. And some of the, one of the kids said, yes. And I was like, no, <laughs> that's not the reason why we have a Christian school. We have a Christian school because in the school, we are free to explore every single uh, one of the sciences from a Christian perspective because they belong to God as well. Uh, there is a division at the beginning of creation because of sin, created by sin itself, in what we do. Think about it. Who is the first who starts uh, crying uh, upon the name of the Lord, worshiping the name of the Lord in the scriptures after Abel and Cain? Seth. What are we told about Seth? We're we to told that they worship God. They had a family who were faithful to God, uh, out, out of which comes Noah, right? 
but nothing else. What are we told about Cain? Oh, of Cain, we are told a lot of things. He creates the first city. He creates, he has children who are very, very creative and very, very, very gifted by God himself. Uh, they create flutes and uh, treatment of bronze and metal, and they are uh, doing arts and all of these things. So the geniuses of the world are not uh, the, the heirs of Seth, are the heirs of Cain. And so it's the line of the serpent who is always advancing arts and sciences and technology and so on. Do you know who reconciles that and brings it back to, to, to be used for God's glory? Jesus Christ. How do we know that? We just read it. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He reconciles everything in him. Everything. Sciences, for, for God's glory. Uh, art, for God's glory. Um, metallurgics, everything, for God's glory. How can that be? Because he despises nothing. He despises nothing. Everything that comes into, co into contact with your hands is something that is being transformed, used for God's glory. Does it mean you are going to do it perfectly? No, it doesn't. It's still crooked, tainted by sin and everything. But the principle of life that is in you also is transforming the way you do things. And finally, one day in heaven, you are going to work things in a way that brings glory to God. Our Revelation 21. And the kings of the earth bring his treasures to the king. What are those treasures? Not just worship. Not just, not just song. It seems like it's products that they worked with their hands. If you go to Isaiah 60, the, the gold from the earth, uh, the, the canopies from those guys who live in Tarshish, those, those things they are bringing to Zion, to the king. Can you imagine like in eternity, like, oh, I made this perfect ring. It's, it has like, what's the, the metal that it looks, uh, Damascus uh, metal. Looks beautiful for the glory of the king. And Jesus goes, oh, that's amazing. Uh, thank you, my son. Really cool. And we imagine heaven is going to be, yeah, one day more. What are you doing? No, I don't know. I've been singing for a thousand years. I'm going to sing again. Like, no, there is more things than just that. And that's already amazing. And we will never get tired of that. But there are things because Jesus has reconciled heaven and earth. Uh, nothing is out of his uh, uh, glory. And then uh, finally, another image of Jesus as king. Um, Revelation 5.5. 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So uh, why all of, the, all of those references? For you to understand that the concept of king that was occupied in the Old Testament by Yahweh, it's still there in the New Testament and is occupied in the New Testament by Jesus Christ. So God is king in the Old Testament. Jesus is king in the uh, New Testament. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. So there is this continuity between uh, Old Testament and New Testament with the idea of king. King is Jesus Christ. King is this one who became flesh in order to fulfill all the promises of God. 
Uh, there is no kingdom without the king, right? Uh, how could that be? Uh, if, if there is no king, there is no kingdom. And Jesus is the one who has brought about his kingdom. Uh, think about Mark and Matthew once again. Repent for the kingdom of God has drawn near. What does that mean? He is the one who is bringing the kingdom. Can you think uh, about um, someone saying, repent uh, for the kingdom of God has arrived. Okay, show us, show us the kingdom. Well, I can't. We, we need to wait. Well, what do you mean? Yeah, I cannot do the things that the king is supposed to do. But you said repent and, and believe. Yeah, yeah, but we need to wait. Like, no, Jesus says repent, believe the kingdom of God has drawn near, and he shows us the kingdom. He forgives sins. He heals people. He uh, transforms lives. And we will see that, uh, how the kingdom is manifested here on earth. But that is a key idea. Kingdom is not, so, is not something that we will bring. Uh, you, can, you can try as much as you want. Force as many people as, as you want, uh, if you think that's a good idea. It's not. But force as many people as you want in order to enter into the kingdom. Let's start a crusade, whatever. And the kingdom is not going to come because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on Jesus. He brings his kingdom and he will bring the consummation of the kingdom when he has decided he's going to do it. It's not on us. We certainly need to preach the gospel, uh, share the, king uh, the kingdom news. We certainly need to live in a different way. Yes, all of those are true. But don't ever think that because of what you are doing, uh, you are going to bring the kingdom. Uh, and when we have like uh, conquered uh, all the countries of the world and every single one of them becomes a Christian and all of them uh, forced conversions and all of them are Christians, then kingdom will come. No, didn't work. Has been done and tried before in the past. Didn't work. It, it's not how it works. It's not what the Bible says. Kingdom is brought about by the king. Consummation, in the same way, is brought about by the king. Uh, it also uh, is not uh, something that will last for a thousand years. In Israel, with Jesus ruling there and uh, ruling for no one else, while the church is in heaven waiting upon Jesus. Um, that's dispensationalism. No, it's not like that either. Because Jesus said the kingdom of God has arrived. And when he went up into heaven, Matthew 28, he said, share the good news of the kingdom. He didn't say, well, so long. They didn't accept me, so I'm taking the kingdom with me. Goodbye. Now everything is spiritual. Nothing for anyone. He didn't say that. Um, he didn't say, disciples, Wait until I come back and then you will see a thousand years of my kingdom. Nothing else. Um, in fact, uh, Peter has that in mind in Acts. And he says, Lord, do you, will you restore uh, the kingdom of God now? Will you restore uh, Israel now? And he's like, it's not up to you to know those things. No. So, no golden age, 
no dispensation of a thousand years. Kingdom of God is now. Why? Because kingdom and king, they are closely connected. If he brought the kingdom and he has established it, and as we have read, he is destroying his enemies, he's ruling, he has seated at the right hand of God the Father, then kingdom is now and kingdom is here as well. There can be no other way. Uh, since, since Jesus the King has brought the kingdom, uh, remember, remember that's a realm, space. Uh, how is that kingdom depicted in the Gospels? Before we go there, huh, do you have any questions? <laughs> yes. How do we reconcile John 17 in the prayer that Christ taught us to pray, that kingdom come? Seems to me that's a futuristic prayer. Yeah. So, how do we reconcile that with what we've been taught here? So you mean Matthew 5? Matthew 6 with uh, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Yep, yeah. yeah. So remember that uh, there are two uh, phases of the kingdom of God. The phase that is already here, already present in us. Um, um, and when we pray the Lord's Prayer, sorry, my mind is not working right now. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? So um, that his kingdom may come means that people may be saved, that we may see that righteousness and justice being displaced. Where do we see that in principle? In the church. When we come to church, we hear the gospel or uh, we are saved and we start living different lives. That's kingdom righteousness being manifested. But is that the whole thing? No, kingdom of God, as we said last week, is already, but it's not yet. Because that prayer is also an imprecatory prayer. Destroy evil, God. Show righteousness, God. Bring about the totality, the consummation of your kingdom, God. And that's something that we don't see just yet. It's awaiting the consummation of the kingdom when Jesus Christ comes. And then he destroys every evil, every opposition, and everyone on earth does and, and will fulfill his will. Because that's what we will rejoice in doing. Right. Uh, so that prayer has two sides to it. It's manifested right now as we seek to live the Christian life. But it's also awaiting for the future uh, to come where Jesus brings the consummation. And uh, we see the final judgment of evil and everyone who has rejected him. So kingdom again is this idea of already and not yet. The, the kingdom is already here, but we don't see the perfection of it. Yet, In the same way, we pray that prayer and it's manifested in certain ways already, but the totality of it we will see in the future uh, when he comes back. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, that's a very good question, though. Um, anyone else? Anyone else? No? Okay, so... Um, If you want to know more about this, uh, Craig Bartholomew has a really cool book called uh, Where Mortals Dwell. Um, and I think it's like 600 pages. Uh, but this is a theology of plays throughout the scriptures. And uh, it's too big. And um, the, the idea is that he's tracing throughout the scriptures um, um, the, this idea of placeness 
Uh, we, we are placed creatures. God made us in that way. Uh, so he puts Adam in the garden and he puts you here. What will happen if God removes the whole universe uh, from under your feet? Well, we float around and we cannot exist, right? So there is something in us that needs the place where we are. And that's why if he created the universe in that way in the beginning, doesn't make sense that in the end, glory is going to be a place in which there is no place for us to stand over. Does that make sense? Because we are placed creatures. We need a place to stand in. Even in glory, our glorified bodies will be different, will be better, but they will not be entirely something else. We will not be angels, in other words. We'll be still creatures with glorified bodies, and part of that means you need a place to stand over. All right? And that's why kingdom is also a realm. Um, uh, so how is, how is that depicted in the Gospels? First of all, kingdom is manifested in, uh, is, is a spiritual kingdom that is manifested in creation. It touches upon creation, so to speak. So it's mainly spiritual, but it's not invisible. You can see what is going on with the kingdom. Already the, the message of Jesus Christ that we saw means repent. That is a spiritual thing. Uh, um, and yet, remember the concept of repentance in the Old Testament? How do you show that you are truly repenting for the Old Testament? You go ahead, remove your clothes, and put sackcloth and ashes over your head, and you go around lamenting. That's how you show you are repenting. Very visible, very tangible, right? Uh, so when you repent in the same way, there is something happening here inside that later on is manifested Externally, uh, isn't it true that when you come to Jesus Christ, your ways change? You rejoiced before in using uh, bad words. It came from you like nothing, like karate. Um, after Jesus, you don't do that anymore. It feels dirty. It's an external manifestation of something that has happened in you. Uh, the kingdom of God does not consist principally, mainly, of physical realities. For the kingdom of God is not, matter of, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, says Paul in Romans 14. Uh, so Jesus brings with him kingdom realities and kingdom ethics. And we read this before, right? Matthew 5, uh, 2 to 11, uh, the Beatitudes. Uh, blessed are those, and so on and so forth. Uh, his kingdom comes into this world, but is not of this world. Uh, listen to John 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over me. What have you, to, what have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. 
Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is the truth? I really like that, that answer, Pilate, because it's so actual, so relevant, so postmodern. Um, uh, what is the truth? I do whatever I want with the truth. My truth, your truth. But uh, the point is, Jesus himself is saying, my kingdom is something that comes out of this world. It's not built under um, normal means. How do you build a kingdom? How do you build a nation? Well, you have people, right? And people get uh, stronger, bigger, and then we start crushing other people. So we grow and become richer, father, better, and then uh, we conquer until we are destroyed by other, bigger, father, better, right? Um, that's how it works. Well, Jesus is saying that's not how his kingdom works because his kingdom comes from heaven, comes from a different realm, and yet it is, it, it's spiritual and it imposes itself over this world. How is the kingdom uh, of God advanced? It advances through the action of the Spirit and the Word. Uh, think about uh, John 3 when Nicodemus is coming to Jesus Christ and he says, uh, Oh, teacher, we know you are from God because no one can do the things that you do if, it, if, he, if God is not with him. And Jesus doesn't say, Oh, thank you, Nicodemus. You're great. You nailed it. No, he says, uh, Truly, truly, I tell you, that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he has been born again. And then he continues explaining how uh, in order for you to be born again, you need the action of the Holy Spirit in your heart. You need to believe. It's a different kind of uh, kingdom advancement. We cannot advance the kingdom in our own strength. Uh, you can have really good preachers, like the best uh, uh, speakers of the world, with the best sermon in the world. And it will do nothing. Because that's not how the kingdom of, war, of, of, of Jesus uh, works and advances. You can, you can uh, try to uh, have a, a, an earthly kingdom and say, we are going to advance the kingdom of God. And then force people, like beating them up, uh, like, like Hitler did uh, with the Nazis. Beating them up. Believe in Jesus. Okay. And, you know, you did. Uh, and that's not how the kingdom of God works. How does the kingdom of God work? Uh, Paul says, uh, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What power? The power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, transforming hearts. And on earth, as we have seen, uh, it's a kingdom that has, uh, in the church, that has good guys bad guys, believers, unbelievers. It's a spiritual reality. And yet, uh, is that it? Of course not. There is a physical component to it, believe it or not. Uh, it is a kingdom that comes into the cosmos. Jesus is the king, and yet he's a man. Have you thought on that? Uh, Jesus, the king, is a man. Uh, he's not an angel, although he could have been. Uh, manifesting himself in, into the shape of an angel. He could just show his glory, right? And, and say, you all obey me. And, you know, period. 
But that's not how he came. He came as a man. And that really tells you a lot. He is the king of the heavenly kingdom. And yet he comes as a man in order to bring his kingdom into physical realities as well. Kingdom touches everything in creation, including that which the curse of sin had deformed. So you see in the Gospels, people who are uh, demon-possessed, and they come like, that, that's the impression that, that the Gospels give us, right? And they are like, and salivating, and you know, they, throw into the fire them, they throw themselves into the fire and things like that, destroying their bodies. Why is it that Jesus doesn't say, eh, it's just a body, but his soul is going to be with me, so don't worry. Let him burn himself. Let him do those stupid things. Don't worry about it. I'm telling you, he's fine. He doesn't say that. When he finds a demon-possessed guy in Capernaum, um, um, there is a, a, an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! Huh? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. See, Jesus doesn't say, Be silent. And then, you know, the demon has to be silent because he has to obey Jesus. And then, all right, let's keep teaching and talking and don't pay attention to that guy over there. No. He says, be silent and come out of him. Jesus is concerned for his body as well. Then uh, he finds in Luke 5 uh, a guy who is sick. Uh, there came a, a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean only in the spirit. Your body, eh, you will have to die, but don't worry. It's okay. You will be in heaven because I said you are clean. No. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus is concerned about the body of this guy. So much so that he touches him and cleanses him. Why is that? Kingdom of God represents good news for our bodies as well, for the physical side of it. Um, then uh, uh, death itself is, is removed by the power of the kingdom. Uh, John 11, it's a very familiar one. Lazarus has died and everyone is... Uh, crying, and Martha, instead of Mary, is the one who comes to see Jesus. And she goes, oh, Jesus, if you just would have been here, my brother would not have died. And he goes, don't worry, he will live. And Martha goes, oh, I know he will live. In the resurrection, Jesus could have said, yes, you're right, Martha, good job. You aced this test. Be, be comforted in the resurrection. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. And he goes to the tomb and raises Lazarus up from the dead. Luke 7. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the, of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. 
And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep, because he is going to be in heaven. That's not what he says. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. So see, repent for the kingdom of God has arrived is also manifested in the fact that the kingdom of God uh, brings good news to soul and to body. Not just to soul, but to your body as well. And we see that in the many miracles that Jesus does. Your bodies, the physical reality that God has created, is important for Jesus too. The kingdom of God consists of glorified bodies as well. That's precisely the point of Paul in uh, chapter 15 of Corinthians. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Um, so he's, he's kind of um, opposing the Gnostic, the um, proto-Gnostic idea of the resurrection doesn't exist. Especially for the Greek religions, uh, they couldn't believe something like resurrection. Remember Acts 17, uh, I should have these references here. Um, but remember Acts 17 when Paul is uh, preaching in Athens. And he is speaking about the unknown God that he has come to proclaim. When he comes to the resurrection, everyone goes like, Ah, oh, man, your message was so good. But how could we believe that your God is going to raise something as dirty as these bodies? Haven't you read Plato? Of course he has. But haven't you read Plato? That uh, the world of the ideas is the perfect world. That's where we want to go. And that you, you are telling us that our bodies, this flesh is going there? Paul, you are crazy. And yet that's precisely the hope of the Christian. That we will be raised with our bodies. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of, it, of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the, glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from a star in glory." Uh, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Uh, the, uh, if I remember well, uh, the Greek there is the first man, Adam, became a soulish being. Uh, the last, Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. 
why is Paul so concerned about bodies? Why he doesn't go, you know what? Those are foolish questions. They don't have anything to do with the kingdom of God or, or hope. Uh, who cares? Like, stop losing your time, as he does with Timothy. Uh, he says to Timothy, do not be concerned about genealogies. Those are foolish questions. Don't talk about those. But he doesn't say that here. Why is that? Kingdom of God encompasses your bodies. Physical realities as well. There is a resurrection hope. And Jesus even shows the presence of the, king in, of the kingdom in blessing a wedding. A wedding of all places. Is there anything more mundane uh, than a wedding? Like everyone dancing, drinking, partying, like nothing, nothing happens. Oh, it's so cool. I'm going to read it. On the third day, um, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. So John 1, he's talking about eternity. On the first day, he shows us um, John the Baptist. On the second day, he shows you um, Jesus Christ being baptized. On the third day, he shows you uh, the calling of the disciples. Uh, and then the next day, Nathaniel. So you have four days. And then comes chapter 2. Chapter 2, he tells you on the third day, what day are we in? The seventh day. The seventh day. The seventh day is the day of perfection. The day in which God rested. And in the seventh day, you have the Son of God in a wedding. There is a celebration. And this wedding is being blessed by the presence of Jesus. And Jesus is invited. When the, when the wine ran, ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the, to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine, and did not know where it came from, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. There are so many cool things happening here. But this day, the seventh day, the day of perfection, the day in which the Messiah is here, he manifests his glory in the fact that he is multiplying wine. What? Kingdom of God. And not any wine, good French uh, wine, the best wine. Um, there is a prophecy, I don't remember where, in the Old Testament, I think it's Isaiah, that it speaks about when the kingdom of God comes, from Zion it will flow wine, and everyone will be able to sit down and dwell under his fig tree in peace and enjoy the blessings of God. And what is Jesus doing here? He comes, sits down in a wedding, 
enjoys the party, isn't that too dirty for Jesus? No. Kingdom of God. More than just spiritual things. And then he gives them wine. I can't. It's so comical because he asks the guys to fill the jars with water and then go to the master. I'm sure they were laughing. Like, Jesus, oh, he's so fun. He's going to make fun of the guy. And he's like, he's going to try it. And they're like, he's going to try it. He's going to try it. And then it's wine. Isn't that crazy? And yet the symbolism behind is more important. Is a physical thing. A, a thing that many evangelicals today and Christians will say, uh, that's nasty. Wine. We are not supposed to touch it. Jesus did. We're not supposed to drink it. Jesus did. And he promises in the supper that he's going to retaste it again in glory. Clearly, there is more. If, if there's going to be wine in glory, what do we need in order to make wine? Grapes. There is going to be a realm in glory. Right? Um, anyhow, sorry. Our time is... Our time has come. Uh, ah, I'm sorry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the concept of the kingdom of God on the New Testament and how uh, big and all-encompassing that is. Uh, because for your grace, there is nothing that is uh, forbidden or bad in itself. In fact, you restore all things. And we thank you, Lord, for that. Uh, we pray that uh, as we move to this world and in this world, uh, we may bring glory to your name in our different vocations, uh, remembering that nothing is dirty for you, that we can engage in each one of them for your glory. And uh, one day when we see you coming back and uh, enjoy of your kingdom, uh, <coughs> Lord, uh, we pray that um, we may uh, enjoy that expectation, that we may look forward to that, and that uh, the work and the task that you have for, uh, you have for us over there uh, may, may be something that fills us with hope and awe even now so we can serve you better today. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brothers and sisters.